This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. Today, we have Chloe Valdery. This is a young woman who has looked at the state of race relations in this country and decided to do something about it. She is the anti-Robin D'Angelo. She is a woman of color. She is a writer. She is a public speaker. And she created the theory of enchantment. This is the thing you need to offer to your company when they try to cram critical race theory down your throat. It is something that is uplifting. It is forgiving. It is kind. It is loving. And it does not assume the worst of humanity. She's got a lot of interesting thoughts on race, on humanity, on our country, and on where we go from here. And I know you're going to love her. But before we get to Chloe, let's talk about coffee. Uh, and of course, we're talking Black Rifle Coffee because it's amazing. And I've been having it every morning. I am telling you, I'm promising you, it is so good. That's not just because they're advertising on my show. Uh, let me tell you a bit about the company. Black Rifle Coffee Company, uh, its CEO and founder is Evan Hafer. And this guy started after over 20 years in the U.S. Army uh, as an in infantryman and special forces soldier, not to mention CIA contractor, his own coffee company. He started roasting this stuff in 2006 to take with him while overseas. And he modified his gun truck in the invasion of Iraq to grind his coffee. Uh, he founded the coffee company in 2014, along with his buddy, Army Ranger Matt Best, as the combination of two passions, developing premium fresh roasted coffee and honoring and supporting those who serve on the front lines. They have donated tons of this stuff to soldiers overseas and cops and firefighters, not to mention medical workers during COVID. And the best way to enjoy their product, Black Rifle Coffee, is by joining their coffee club. Go to blackriflecoffee.com slash MK today. Check out the freshest coffee in America. Blackriflecoffee.com slash MK. Blackriflecoffee.com slash MK gets you 20% off coffee, apparel, gear, and 20% off your first month of the coffee club. And now, Chloe Valerie. <laughs> Chloe Valdery, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Megan. I know you're young, especially <laughs> to have accomplished all you've accomplished. How how young are you? I'm 27 years old. You're just, you're a babe. You have accomplished <laughs> so much in your 27 years. You have such a deep and interesting way of thinking about the world, humanity, race relations. And I want to tell you in the audience that the reason I first noticed you was in a sea of vitriol on Twitter in the midst of the riots this summer and the just acrimonious race relations we've been seeing, there was one beacon of kindness, hope, positivity, love, and a different way of thinking. And it was you, a black woman raised in New Orleans, who was just sort of urging people to consider coming at it all from a different way. And, that, and I would later learn this is all part of what you teach and, and travel and talk about, which is the Chloe Valdery theory of enchantment. Can you just give us a line or two on what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, theory of enchantment is my startup and I use it to teach compassionate anti-racism to companies primarily, but also to individuals. Um, and it's based upon social emotional learning, developmental psychology, and this idea that you can't really develop healthy relationships with others unless you first develop a healthy relationship with yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's a 25 lesson course uh, teaching people how to do how to do just that, how to deal with the human condition, how to make peace with themselves, 
how to develop a sense of inner contentment and wholeness so that they can then go out in the world and really spread that love and spread that light to others. As I see it, and I haven't taken the course, but as I read about it, to me, it seems like the opposite of Robin D'Angelo's white fragility. Like I see her as out there saying, you know, you're all biased, racist, and any denial of that just proves my theory. And you're just the title, compassionate anti-racism. It's not like you don't admit there's racism in the world, but you, nor do you demonize entire groups of people, or even if you see a racist act, demonize the individual. You have a much more holistic and I would say forgiving approach to this problem. Do I have it right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we try to, you know, pursue this concept of agape love, which Dr. King famously pursued in a lot of his work. And we're definitely very, I think, antithetical to the philosophy of Robin D'Angelo, because as you said, we don't believe in dehumanizing even the offender. And in fact, we believe that um, a lot of racism comes from uh, this sort of function of overcompensation for insecurity. And Mm -hmm. so if you make people feel more insecure, you're actually creating the conditions that make racism and other forms of extremism more likely. Um, Mm -hmm. So we don't take that route of, you know, dehumanizing people based upon uh, their skin color or assuming we know where they come from because of their uh, skin color or socioeconomic status or what have you. We really believe in elevating everyone and elevating uh, the human condition and giving people the tools to, to again, make peace with themselves and have that inner sense of contentment so that they don't feel insecure and then go out and overcompensate for that insecurity in problematic ways. It's funny because I look at some of these young kids, let's say, you know, college age kids who get in trouble for saying something perceived as racist and, and in society too, it's not just the young kids, but the reaction these days is almost universally, you're bad, you're a racist, Mm -hmm. you're awful. And I always think to myself, who exactly do they think that's going to convert out of their racism? Yeah, I mean, we definitely believe in the philosophy of restorative justice uh, in theory of enchantment, and we teach different elements of that, um, which, of course, is very relevant to criminal justice reform. Um, And we believe uh, in this idea of the interdependence of all human beings. And so, yeah, we try to create, again, the conditions that um, make forgiveness ripe and forgiveness more likely. But also, we don't believe in call out culture. We believe in calling in culture. So, um, yeah, I think also you have to remember that, unfortunately, there's a lot of incentive uh, just from the perspective of being on social media platforms that where, where our attention as an audience is actually the product. And there's a lot of incentive to create content um, that will drive outrage. And I think that that seeps into the culture where we're constantly being outraged. Um, and so we have to step back and ask, you know, what our goals are, what our, what our objectives are in terms of creating the conditions for human flourishing and work toward that as opposed to but, just But being... nobody wants that. <laughs> don't you think? <laughs> I look around and I'm like, I don't think that's people's goal, human flourishment, flourishing. I think it's like they enjoy being outraged a lot, a lot of folks. And yeah. when these incidents come up, what they want to do is walk away with a scalp, you know, and it somehow yeah. it makes them feel good. Yeah, but my sense is that it's not a it's it's probably not a long term thing. You know, it's like a dopamine rush. And um, obviously, one of the things that connects us all as human beings is that we all have the same software in our heads, a.k.a. our brains. And we are dealing with um, a sophisticated piece of software in the sense that um we have a we have the limbic system right which is responsible for fast thinking and then we have the the prefrontal cortex which is which is more uh prone to slow thinking to to more rational thinking um but unfortunately again i think especially now that we're constantly on social media all the time we are incentivized from a media perspective to be outraged and so i think it's important to get more voices out there that are speaking about slowing down and again encouraging people to think about what their objectives are and as opposed to just mm-hmm. sort of like acting like a, a pinball machine and just going you know from from different outraged piece of content to the next yeah we have been programmed programmed to do that when I when I was looking into the, the theory of enchantment, one of the things you talked about um, on, in your materials is how you want to give people the tools for resiliency. 
And mm-hmm. I, that spoke to me because I really, whenever somebody asks me, how, how, do you, how did you get to be this way? How did you get to be so strong? You know, something like that. I say, mm-hmm. I, a lot of bad stuff happened to me and I dealt with it and moved forward. You know, like I wasn't protected from really anything. Bad things happened. I dealt with them. And here I am. That's really the sum of it, which mm-hmm. is one of the reasons I don't believe in safe spaces. But mm-hmm. today, if you talk about certainly as a white person, if you talk about resiliency to a black person talking about racism, they're going to take that as proof, further proof of your racism. Right. Like, don't don't tell me I need to be resilient you don't understand what I've been through. You don't know what it's like to deal with, you know, what many perceive as a systemically racist country. And so I wonder if if you ever get that as a black woman talking about this theory and talking about resiliency, does does anyone look at you and say, well, that's just based on such fundamentally flawed assumptions about what black people are capable of in this country? Um, you know, not really and and I, you know, we teach a lot of James Baldwin in the actual training. And he famously said, you know, you sometimes you can get caught in this trap where you think that you're the only person who's experienced suffering. And then you sort of read and you learn and you live throughout the world and you learn that, you know, suffering is a part of the human condition um, and other other people experience suffering as well. And I also think that resiliency is actually a a feature of the african-american tradition again we we reinforce it by having our students learn from folks like james baldwin and dr maya angelou and martin luther king jr so i think it's very difficult for people to to make that challenge just because we're coming we're, we're coming in a very like educational um but and how, integrated do we, way. how do we get because when I hear you talking about that i completely agree just on a human level i've talked about this when it comes to sexism many times that it, it it's not that you don't experience it. You you may very well, I've experienced it, but I just refuse to stay mired in it. And I refuse to allow it to give me a negative world outlook or to make me believe for one second that I'm not capable of anything I want to do. And when I read your materials, that's that's how I hear you speaking about people of color. And I, but I, I wonder because now you see anger in the wake of George Floyd and other cases that the media has played over and over and over as though it's representative of what's happening day to day on the streets of America. Um, I see anger. I see, you know, when you see some of these riots, just uncontrollable rage. And I think it's going another way, you know, even reading books like White Fragility and reading Ibram X. Kendry, Kendry, How How to Be an Anti-Racist. It's not based in we're strong, we're resilient, we can work together. We're all human. You know, it's it's coming from a very different place. Speak, can you speak to that sort of anger and how you see the way forward to get folks out of that? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I, I would be remiss if I sort of downplayed the challenge uh, that we have to convince people or encourage people to, I think, overcome that rage that you describe or move from rage to reconciliation. Um, and and it is, you know, theory of enchantment is certainly positioned as the alternative to Ibram Kendi and Robin D'Angelo's model for that reason. You know, I believe in reminding people of those who have come before us, those those wise people who have come before us, who have left us with words of wisdom to teach us how to deal with that rage and to transcend that rage. Um, and um, so I, I am very aware of, you know, sort of like the the landscape of what's going on out there. And this is, you know, a kind of fight that we have to wage, but I just intend to wage it with love because I think that's the only way to really overcome some of this this rage. You can't really you can't really fight rage by, you know, being vengeful or rageful yourself. So I have to do all I can to model, you know, agape love, reconciliation, um, you know, on social media and in the things that I do professionally. And I I also have to believe that that will be able to make a difference. And I do believe that that will make a difference. I think I've, I've seen that um, begin and it's a, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Um, and I'm okay with that. I think that this is a, a, a beautiful, dare I say it, a uh, fight worth fighting. Um, and I'm really happy to be in the position that I am in to, to fight it. More with Chloe in one minute, but first... 
Do you know that the average American has 97 points they can add to their credit score and they have no clue on how to get them? It seems just like a hassle, doesn't it? It's like, I can't raise my credit. It sucks. I'm going to have to live with it until I spend seven years paying my bills perfectly on time. Not so. Thanks to ScoreMaster, you can improve it right now. This is the new credit science that will super boost your credit score. Forget raising your credit score a few points. That's weak and it's actually not really worth your time. The average ScoreMaster user will raise their credit score 61 points in 20 days or less. 61. And you could go up to 97. I mean, you could really soar. Say your credit card score was in the high 500s to mid 600s, which is pretty good when you bought that new car. If you had gone to ScoreMaster first and raised your credit score, just the average of 61 points that our listeners are going to get, you could have saved 9,000 bucks on your car loan. Think of what you could have for $9,000 just by going to ScoreMaster. If you'd gone to them before applying for a home loan and raised your score just the average 61 points, again, that our listeners are going to get, you could have saved almost $100,000 over the life of your loan. And if you live in New York, New Jersey, or Connecticut, you're going to need it as the taxes go up thanks to these governors and their inability to handle the COVID fallout. What? I I digress. Okay. (laughs) Listen, ScoreMaster is here at a time when we need them the most. They will put you in control of your finances, not the banks. You can enroll in minutes and see how many plus points ScoreMaster can add to your credit score. Visit scoremaster.com slash MK, scoremaster.com slash MK. Now back to Chloe Valdery. good role models. You mentioned Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who's, I think it's sort of nuts how some people are like, don't talk about him. You know, those days are yeah. over that, you know, we're, we're beyond that. The current situation calls for something else. But he was, of course, all about nonviolence and and even practiced, practiced. He and, uh, and other black people in the 1960s not responding to violence violently. And mm-hmm. morally, it gave them the upper hand to win that fight. Right. And it's like we're we don't seem to be taking the lessons from that or at least I don't know. You know, when I see sort of BLM out in the streets flipping people's dinner tables over and like making them raise a fist and say what they want them to say, I think this is exactly the opposite of people who used to who knew they'd get beaten for eating at the white uh, restaurant, you know, counter and were prepared to emerge with the moral high ground. Mm hmm. Well, I think what's a little bit challenging here is you have BLM, the organization, uh, which is an, a non-centralized organization, and then the majority of people who identify with BLM who know nothing about the organization, which means that the the movement itself can actually be co-opted. But that's actually, I think it's an incredible opportunity because to the extent that it can be co-opted for bad, it means it also can be co-opted for good. Um, so that's one thing to consider. But the other thing to consider um, with this is that I actually don't think most people are intimately familiar with the writings and teachings of Dr. King. And so part of what we're trying to do with theory is really um, get get our clients and get the people that we service to actually seriously study their writings. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is that Dr. King and you know, folks like John Lewis and individuals during the civil rights movement practiced nonviolence because they believed that the oppressor, quote unquote, was also a victim of his own ways of thinking. And so they believed that the oppressor was also made in the image of God. Um, and, and this is something, this is a very, this is a spiritual foundation that I think is missing. And this is sort of a, a crisis of modernity um, in a sense, but the spiritual foundation um, is, is missing from a lot of our conversations. And this is something we also hope to, to really bring back to the forefront is like, the conversation around spirituality and trying to root what we do in a, in a more spiritually grounded um, approach mm-hmm. as opposed to just like a more materialistic approach. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because I know that you, I've read what you've said about wokeness, you know, this wokeness mm-hmm. craze. And you said one of the things you think is driving it is there's sort of a lack of purpose going on for some folks now and that people, while they may be materially enriched, maybe, maybe not these days, Mm-hmm. They're spiritually impoverished. How is spiritual impoverishment leading to wokeness? Yeah, so I think that there's a great deal of alienation um, that we're forced to contend with, and I don't think there's anyone. I don't think anyone is is like at fault per se. Again, I think it's a, a crisis 
of modernity. Um, Timothy P. Carney wrote about this in his book, Alienated America. And this is a this is a, a challenge that has really affected everyone in the country from the left to the right. And what's, unfortun- what's unfortunately going on, I think, is pe- people on the reactionary right and people on the woke left are suffering from alienation, um, but are oftentimes implementing policies, implementing solutions that actually perpetuate alienation even more in the name of trying to uh, stop it. And this includes otherizing people. Um, and this is something that we as human beings have always done. This is like the, the we, we tend to think in either or ways of thinking, especially when we um, think our, our security or safety is under threat whether perceived or real. Um, and so we're prone to start thinking in those very shortcut, reductive ways. But the, the challenge here, I think, and this speaks to the spiritual issue, is to create solutions that take away that sense of alienation, that bring back that sense of community, again, that bring back that sense of reconciliation and the beloved, the beloved community, um, as Dr. King spoke of. Um, and this requires that we sort of rewire our brains and rewire our our how we choose to be in relationship with each other, which to me, again, begins with being in a healthy relationship with yourself. Um, and this is even more of an issue uh, because of COVID, because we're, we're neurobiologically wired for connection and we're experiencing um, you know, long periods of isolation and disconnection. And so we have to work overtime to really keep ourselves in check um, and make sure that we take the steps that we can take to foster connection with one another. Um, and really try so to avoid. True. I think everybody's been feeling that. that you know, yeah. it's not even not even just the quarantine and the reduced socialization, but even when you are with somebody, you've got the mask on. There's another layer between the two of you. There's just a. It's just not as intimate as it used to be. And I and yeah. I feel like, of course, thanks to the iPhone and the tablets and all that, we're not as intimate as we used to be. And there's just a. We were socially distanced before we were socially distanced. And, yeah. you know, you can yeah. you can feel us growing apart as a society as opposed to, I mean, growing. I was I was looking at the latest Gallup poll and I realize this has to do with a lot more than the iPhone. But it was saying that the, the people's views of race relations right now in the country are lower than they've been in 20 years. That as recently as 2013, more than 60 percent, 66 percent of Americans describe race relations as good, pretty good, pretty good, somewhat good, very good. And today, just 44% say that. So, I mean, what what do you think factors into that? I mean, I imagine a whole host of things factor in. Um, I actually think the iPhone does play a role because if if people are only, if people are constantly exposed to videos of police brutality, and this is the only thing that they're exposed to, then perception is reality. Uh, and people will believe that that is the only thing that's going on. Um, if that's the only thing that they're exposed to. So I do think the iPhone plays a role. Um, and again, like the, the outrage machine uh, and that being connected to a sense of uh, dopamine um, plays a role uh, as well. But also I think on the other hand, like if you were to look at critical race theory, which is becoming a, a bit of a prominent thing in certain institutions, certainly in academia, but slowly but surely creeping into the business world as well. Um, I think that that is also, I would, I would say that I would argue that that also suggests a, a, um, decrease in good race relations actually. So I'm not, that's, I'm not that surprised that, that that poll reflects, um, those numbers. I, I was re- reading Jonathan Capehart in the Washington post who had read white fragility and he was talking about the tears he had in his, in his eyes at feeling recognized by Robin D'Angelo and, and lauding the moment that she she was about to leave the room and I, and I wrote down the quote he wrote she said to me i'm going to look at you now and say on behalf of my people i apologize <laughs> i want you to know that as long as i'm alive i will work to wake my people up to continue my own process and to see that we can recover and at least when i am at the end of my life i can say i did what i could now, yeah. if I said that to my black friends, Chloe, they would laugh me out of the room. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. what? You're, I'm not your victim, right? Like right. that's, yeah. that's what they would say to me. So, but I do feel like being lectured that you're supposed to begin and end conversations like that, and then having to sit down at your employer and be told that 
You just have to listen to what a racist you are and how whiteness is equivalent with white yeah. supremacy and not say anything. It makes the white people resentful. Well, it also makes, you know, some white people confused because uh, I've I've heard from people who have said, you know, I've read Robert D'Angelo and clearly this doesn't make any sense, but I don't know what to do because this is popular, you know, it's in vogue. So I'm a little confused. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a very like narcissistic uh, perspective um, that like my my sense of the richness of life should revolve around this person merely because of her pigmentation. I should also say though, that I think this actually is a byproduct of our hyper consumerist society. I mean, Ibram Kendi and both Ibram Kendi and Robin D'Angelo, I think actually see race as a form of capital, which is, which is incredibly dehumanizing um, to say the least. And I think that that plays a role in a lot of these conversations where we're seeing people uh, not as individuals, right, but as but as sort of like the quote unquote races to which they belong. And also a lot of this is um, just a lot of this is 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 painting a false reality. The fact of the matter is, as again, Albert Murray pointed out in On the Americans, um, that that America is a very mixed race country. Right. Um, there are very there are actually very few um um, black Americans in the country that are not also white and very few white Americans in the country that are not also black. So there's a lot of uh, confusion. Um, there's a lot of conflating of race with culture. There's a lot of uh, mm-hmm. confusion around and socioeconomic what exactly, class. Exactly. Yes. And also there's just confusion about misdefining terms as a thing. So, you know, I think we need to get, get back to a spiritual foundation. Um, and again, really ask like, what is the vision of the future we're trying to create? Um, and what for do, me, what it's... do you think? Like when you when you hear, because I hear people ask me this all the time. Yeah. What should I do when somebody when my employer comes to me and says I have to sit for one of these critical race theory sessions mm-hmm. where I, I'm going to be told my whiteness makes me a white supremacist? Mm-hmm. What what should they do? Well, that's a great question. I get a lot of emails actually of people reporting what's happening in their workplaces. Um, I would say. Um, try to see if you can engage uh, your higher ups on bringing an alternative program. I mean, I obviously promote and would love for more people to bring theory of enchantment into their workplace. Um, so um, we have a lot of free resources on our website that people can send to their higher ups to check out what we offer. But also, I think from what I've heard about what happens when these types of other frameworks are brought in, it, it causes a lot of animosity. It, it causes a lot of rifts between coworkers, um, and quite frankly, it opens up the door for potential liability because it actually perpetuates workplace discrimination on some level. So I think, like, if there are any, you know, um, higher level executives listening to this, like, it's important to be aware of that, like, and, and to make sure you're not bringing in a program that is actually actively promoting workplace discrimination because you could be you could be held liable for that. Now, have you had any of the fallout that, you know, people like Glenn Lowry, Coleman Hughes have had where as a result of your somewhat heterodox views on these issues and how to go about you know, improving race relations, you're, you're referred to as, you know, the, the C word um, rhymes with boon. Yeah. <laughs> um, trying, yeah. trying to think of a, a not awful way of communicating it. I mean, have you had blowback for not sounding more like Kendi and and less like Lowry? No, I mean, it, well, I really think it depends on how you define blowback. Are there like some people on my Twitter who might take offense and insult me? Yes, but I don't really consider that blowback, you know, especially compared to what other people who have come before us have gone through for standing up for what's right. Um, also, I'm aware of the fickle nature of social media. Um, and I have actively and I'm constantly trying to train myself not to respond to every little thing that happens. I know that, you know, yeah, I know that if something goes viral today, it's not going to be relevant tomorrow. Um, so I'm less inclined to pay attention to those things anyway. And I haven't really seen a lot of that uh, as a response. On the flip side, I'm going to guess that you in your 27 years have experienced racism. I mean, this is sort of the yeah. blowback for not complaining more about racism, but I'm sure you've experienced racism in your 27 years as well. I mean, definitely. Yeah. How, how, what has that looked like and how have you avoided bitterness? Um, 
That's a, that's a good question. I mean, it's looked like the typical, you know, sort of use of slurs and um, certainly the N-word uh, toward me, toward my person. Um, and how do I avoid bitterness? I think, I think this is why I believe so much in actually engaging with the texts of folks that have come before us because they sort of gave us a roadmap of specifically how to deal with bitterness. Um, I, I'm aware that bitterness and rage actually corrupts the person um, who is sort of stuck in it. Um, and I don't want to be that person. I want to always try to transcend and always try to be, try to have that, that sense of wholeness because I'm aware of the cruel cycle that insecurity can really play in a person's life. Um, I'm really can blessed. I just ask to, you, can I, yeah. can I ask you before, cause I, I completely agree with this attitude. Yeah. Um, and I do think, you know, when you, when you hold that poison inside of you, you're the first one to suffer from it. Yeah. Whatever the reason is that you're being put down or attacked, but and and if you don't want to talk about this, I understand. But did somebody actually look at you and say the N word to you? I mean, you were actually called that by another human. Yeah, definitely. And some like what what does it take to then not extrapolate? I assume it was a white person. Yeah. Okay, so what does it take to not extrapolate that to other? white people, right? Like this is what quote yeah. they think of me. This is why there is a division between them and me. Because I feel yeah. like right now as a society, we're going the other way. You know, I was always raised to think to be to be I was told you don't stereotype. You know, if you see you see a black man doing something illegal, that doesn't mean anything about black people as a whole. But I feel like right now all the messaging is exactly the opposite, right? That your skin color determines everything about you, good and bad. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think that in that situation, I recognized that what was going on had nothing to do with me um, and had everything to do with the person and what state of mind they were in. Um, I think that we as human beings are always experiencing movies in our in our heads and projecting certain things that we're experiencing internally on the external world. Um, and so this individual was projecting something that had nothing to do with me. And so that ability to, to depersonalize it, um, I think, is key. If you're not able to depersonalize it, you won't if you're not able to think immediately to yourself. And this is something we train people to do in theory of enchantment to think to yourself what intern what internal mechanism what inter internal emotions are going on with this within this person that's informing his behavior uh, and then work from there as opposed to saying to yourself oh you know he called me this and you know like like and, and get a sense of you know my ego has been shattered because this person called me this like it has nothing to do with me it has absolutely nothing to do with me because i i know i'm not that More with Chloe in a minute, but first, let's talk about Norton 360 with LifeLock. Identity theft has become a massive crime, with criminal gangs operating units dedicated to this. They're no longer just on the streets. They are on the internet, and they are targeting you. Certain behavior can make you a lot more vulnerable to this thing, identity theft. Like, if you don't check your credit card or your bank statements every month, I mean, seriously, do you pour through that thing with a fine-tooth comb? Very few people do or using the same username and password on every account. And you know, you've got 40,000 of these things to go through. So the odds of never repeating one are slim, never checking your credit report, and then oversharing personal information on social media, which too many people do. All these things put you at risk. You put your information in so many places online. And unfortunately, these cyber criminals are ready for it. They know what you're doing. They're onto you. And they keep finding new ways to steal your identity. That's where Norton LifeLock comes in. They will give you more protection than ever. Norton 360 with LifeLock provides all-in-one protection with device security, identity theft protection, and a VPN for online privacy. And if you've had an identity theft problem, they will make sure that you have a U.S.-based restoration specialist to work with you to fix it. No one can prevent all cybercrime, we know that, or identity theft, or monitor every single transaction at a business. But Norton 360 with LifeLock is a powerful ally for your cybersecurity safety. Sign up today and save 25% or more off your first year by going to norton.com slash MK. That's 25% off Norton 360 with LifeLock at norton.com slash MK. 
Okay, and now we want to bring to you a feature that we have here on the show called Real Talk. This is one where I just want to tell you about something that happened in my life or something real that's going on that I think uh, is worth sharing. And today I want to tell you about uh, a very special event that I went to last weekend with my pal Janice Dean from Fox News. She's the meteorologist there. So let me take you back 10 years ago when I was at Fox and we had, um, I, I think it was the death of the Pope. And we used to use Father Jonathan Morris, a Catholic priest, to come on and talk about pretty much anything that broke involving the Catholic Church. And I got to know him pretty well. Super sweet guy. We um, were relatively new to New York City, and I didn't have a personal connection to a Catholic priest here yet, even though you know I am Catholic. Just wasn't feeling the bond with my local church. Long story short, he became our priest. And um, we wound up having three kids, Doug and I. He baptized all three of our children. He became a spiritual advisor to me in addition to you know our priest, which happens with a lot of priests. Well, imagine my surprise a year and a half, 18, 24 months ago, when he called me up to tell me he was peace outing from the church. I was like, what? Uh, he left the priesthood. So of course, my first reaction, by the way, he baptized Janice's kids too. And so Janice and I were like, is it still legit? Like, do we have to have him re-baptize? We got to go down that lane again? And just be like, my kids are never going to sit for it. But anyway, it turns out that's not, that's not necessary. They're still good. And one of the reasons why he left was he really wanted to get married and have children. And you know, how the Catholic Church is just so like in the dark ages when it comes to this. I personally believe they should completely be letting priests get married and have kids. It's like, it's just so punishing to not allow it. Whatever. I'm not too old school. So Father Jonathan Morris, uh, or FJ as we all call him, although some of the women at Fox called him Father What a Waste because he was very good looking. He's a good looking guy. So FJ, uh, this past weekend, got married. He got married to Caitlin, who happens to be a TV producer for ABC News. And JD and I and a bunch of the folks from Fox News went. And it was beautiful. It was so fun, first of all, to see him up there on the altar on the other side. All I could think was like, is he armchair quarterbacking the homily and the vows? And is he like judging how this guy's doing it versus how he would have done it? But it's it's kind of a cool thing to see your priest up there in a tux next to a woman in a white dress holding hands, taking their marital vows. In the end, it's about love. And I think Cardinal Dolan let them have it at St. Patrick's Cathedral, which, you know, clearly he has the blessing of the church, which was a beautiful sight. And, and um, when I saw them at the reception, those of you who've been following me for years will know that I, I have a tendency to say the wrong thing if they're if given too much time in silence. <laughs> I just feel the need to fill the silence in a way that always comes back to bite me. What I said to them when I saw them at the reception because you never know what to say to somebody, right? It's like, what do you say? You get like one minute with a bride and groom and yeah, like it's beautiful and you look beautiful. And I don't know. I always feel the need to say something more, which is a bad instinct, bad. And uh, what I said was something like, I, I, I can't wait to hear about the honeymoon and I, I can't wait to rewatch the Thornbirds this week. <laughs> which is like, yeah, if you grew up in the 70s or 80s, you know about the Thornbirds, about having an affair with a priest which is not what happened in this case. In any event, I thought you might be uh, interested in hearing my story about now we're going to have to call him formerly FJ, formerly Father Jonathan, and how, you know, like all things in this life, love finds a way. And now back to Chloe. When you're trying to help people love themselves, yeah, <laughs> is that possible? Is it po like, has that ship already sailed by the time they get to you? You know, if they haven't learned it in childhood and through their formative experiences? No, I don't think so. I actually think a lot of us adults are walking around just actually just like young people internally or like children, but like in adult size. Um, so I don't think, I don't think it's impossible. Listen, I actually think that learning to love yourself takes a lifetime. It, it doesn't start and stop with theory of enchantment or with your upbringing. Um, it takes a lifetime um, because we are, I think that the human being is the most sophisticated being on planet earth. Uh, and we are, you know, both in, in my opinion, dust and ashes, but made in the, the, the image of the divine. And so, you know, we deal with the human condition. We have to deal with things like confronting our mortality, insecurity, parental baggage, uh, vulnerability. These are all things we have to deal with as human beings. And so learning to love yourself amidst those things is, a lifetime practice. So I definitely think what, it's possible. What is it about? Is it about 
forgiving your own flaws, your your quote unquote weaknesses? Like what what does that daily practice look like? Because I'm just going to guess it's not like looking in the mirror with you're good <laughs> enough, you're smart yeah. enough. But, but we all have self-doubt. We all have insecurity. We all have things about ourselves we wish weren't so. Yeah. And I think that's what leads to, if not self-hatred, then at least bouts of self, self-loathing, which you accurately point out is what leads to one acting out. When one acts yes. hatefully, it, or, it, it, it tends to originate with hate or, or loathing for one's self. So what does it look like Correct. inside of a person? And, and what is the day-to-day process of eliminating it or at least controlling it? Yeah, so I mean, we teach a couple of things in Theory of Enchantment. We teach, first and foremost, um, folks need to accept the fact that imperfection is a part of life. There's no such thing as perfection. Um, and that's that's one of the hard things, I think, for people to really try to practice and internalize. Um, the fact that like we, we, are imp- we will always be imperfect um, just because that is the nature of life. Um, a- another issue is like practicing vulnerability because... We, we teach uh, Brene Brown's TED Talk on the power of vulnerability when she talks mm, about... I love it. That's so worth everyone's time. It's on Google. Yeah, everyone should YouTube. check that out. It's a great TED Talk. But she, ta- she, you know, she talks about how vulnerability is the birthplace of you know, feeling sad and feeling down, but it's also the birthplace of joy. It's also the birthplace of you know, uh, feeling larger than life. And so if you numb vulnerability, you numb, your, you numb joy. Um, and so it's hard to practice vulnerability, but we teach people to do that because um, otherwise they will remain like paralyzed by fear. Um, and fear is another issue um, that we teach people to sort of practice uh, getting over, um, practice doing things that they, that they fear they would not be good at or, or, or good enough or worthy enough to, to approach. Um, and, and I failed to mention this earlier, but we use a lot of pop culture to teach a lot of these things so that it's memorable and, and repeatable um, and people can uh, recall to memory in difficult times. Um, this these, is exactly the opposite of cancel culture. Exactly the opposite, <laughs> right? It yeah. is, which is which causes fear intentionally, yeah. which makes no room for humanity and yeah. human failings and error, which sizes up a, an entire person based on one incident or you know one m- mistaken fall down. Right? Mm-hmm. Like I, the thing I hate most about cancel culture is how it reduces a human being to one bad moment and yeah. tries to pretend that 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 person is all about that moment. And th- this is being kind. This is the charitable version where the person actually <laughs> did do something bad. You know, right. nine times out of 10, they did something totally innocuous that is only bad in the eyes of sort of these far left woke scolds. But sure. it's that's what I hate about it because then it doesn't lead to expansion or willingness to be vulnerable. It leads to contraction and mm-hmm. hard shells and the desire to fight. Right. So cancel culture uh, is also a byproduct of our hyper consumerist society. Even the language of cancel culture is very transactional, right? Um, so like canceling a subscription, it's like canceling a human being, which is absurd. Um, so we've been conditioned to act in these ways for a very long time. So we have to train ourselves to practice, to think differently. Again, to think about things like restorative justice, which would help. Um, it's interesting because some people on the woke left claim to be um, pro criminal justice reform, um, right? But then they practice a culture of cancel culture, um, which is antithetical to criminal justice reform. You know, I think about this in theory and I think I agree, I agree with all of it, all of it. Mm -hmm. But then if you say, okay, now apply that to Harvey Weinstein, I get stuck. I, I get stuck. It's, and it's not that I can't understand that he, may have been a kind father in some ways mm-hmm. or may have in his own weird way loved his wife mm-hmm. and may have you know donated millions of dollars to good causes and so on so I, it's not that i'm saying the entire man is bad mm-hmm. but i don't feel restorative when i look at him you know it's like sure. i i even i mean i spent some time in the south side of chicago interviewing mm-hmm. a bunch of moms there whose whose kids had been sent to prison um uh, mm-hmm. many of them had been shot their kids had done had done the shooting as well. And they're they're big on restorative justice. And they talk about trying to raise their boys in this impossible environment where crime is everywhere and it's very tough to pull them out of it and get them to the age of majority without having had any real exposure to criminality and danger and life life threatening danger. So I get it. In in that case, I actually get it more than I get it in somebody like Harvey, 
who spent yeah. a lifetime abusing people. So what are your thoughts on somebody like that and how this whole theory would apply to someone like that? Such a great question. I mean, restorative justice is not about a lack of accountability, right? And that's sort of a, a misnomer around restorative justice. So it's definitely about accountability, but restorative justice is also about restoring the victim. Um, and oftentimes in the punitive system, what happens is the state or whatever institution is, is sort of has a jurisdiction um, basically passes down a, a, the conviction or the, the punishment for the crime and the sentence is served, and, but the victim is not necessarily centered. No one comes to the victim and asks them, you know, what do you need in this moment? So restorative justice is actually about really restoring, seeking the restoration for the victim. Um, and, and that oftentimes in turn actually restores the soul, so to speak, of the offender. Um, and in the case of in the case of Harvey Weinstein, I mean, in a in a more I guess in a more restorative justice environment, it isn't like he wouldn't serve time. It isn't like he wouldn't be held accountable for his actions. But there would be a conversation about how he became what he be, what he became and um, how why he did what he did and all of these motivating factors for him and i feel like there would there would be space to have that conversation um and if you if you don't i feel like if you don't create the space to have that conversation then as a society we are less equipped to be able to ask ourselves well how do we create conditions in our society so there's not another harvey weinstein right so like that that added piece is i think would would make justice more sustainable in the long run we had among the women, the moms, they were in like a prayer group circle. Mm -hmm. And one mom, her son had been killed by another of the mom's sons mm -hmm. who was in jail, serving time for the murder. And they were friends and they loved each other. And the, the mother of the son who'd been killed had completely forgiven the other mom's son. And they were talking about that as restorative justice, you know, like that we making that kind of a connection only served the victim and the perpetrator right. well. You know, it wasn't, it, in no way was it painful. It was to the contrary, as hard as it may be. And I feel like you, you can get past that. You can get past anything. But can mm -hmm. I talk to you a bit about faith? Because they were women sure. of faith. And, yeah. um, you know, their prayer group was being run by this heroic nun who we did a story on um, a couple of years ago. But I know faith has played a role in your own life. It's played a role in my life. It's, it's, for me, made me a very forgiving person. I I feel like it might be easier to go to forgiveness if you have a faith background or just a mm -hmm. if you have God in your life. Yeah, I think that's that's probably true. <laughs> I mean, I will say that I think that the society that we live in has been shaped by a Judeo-Christian ethic. And so even if you consider yourself a secular person, um, the morality of the tradition still seeps into the culture. Um, you know, even if you don't personally uh, identify as someone who is a religious person. But I definitely agree with you that if you've been raised religious, I was certainly raised religious, and I think probably your spiritual sensibility, and I'm generalizing here, but your spiritual sensibility is, is more acutely uh, developed. And so you would be more likely to... to see the world through the paradigm of forgiveness and mercy. Um, but I do think that because that the culture we're seeped in that culture, I do think you could still teach it even if you're in a secular environment. Mm -hmm. And there's not, there's also not that vacuum that you need to fill with the quote religion of wokeness or, you know, or even yeah. politics. Some people treat, treat politics like it's a religion. All right. Can I ask you a couple of personal questions? Because I don't really know you. <laughs> you sound sure. incredibly well-read, philosophical, smart, like, what does Chloe Valdry do for fun? I, I like you're so erudite. I can't picture you at a bar slinging drinks, like hanging out. Like, oh. what do you do for fun? Tell me about you. Yeah, I like to dance a lot, actually. Um, prior to COVID, I would go to a wonderful club in Williamsburg in Brooklyn called Bembe, and I would go there every week to dance for like hours and hours, like by myself. Um, so I love to dance. I, I, dance is like a spiritual practice for me. Um, I love to produce to produce music. I love to mix music, both like on the on the vocal side and also on like the DJ side. Um, so that's how I that's like my I guess my artistic outlet uh, for myself. 
Now, do you, what, what does your love life look like? Is that <laughs> fulfilling? Are you well, dating? Like, I just feel oh like you my, have to be with somebody yeah. really smart. You can't be with a moron. I haven't found him yet. So you let me know if you find him because I, I haven't found him yet. But um, uh, so I am definitely single. But and I agree with you that I have to be with someone who can challenge me, but also uh, be fulfilling as well um, and be be a real supporter and partner. I haven't I haven't found him yet, but um, I'm enjoying single life in the meantime and just trying to s- spread theory of enchantment as far and wide as possible. I, I think you're going to one day introduce one very special man to it. And he's going to be feeling exactly that when he meets and gets to know you. Chloe, thank you so much. Thank you for putting so much goodness out into the world and for trying to tackle such a difficult subject with such goodness. It's wonderful to meet you. Thank you, Megan. Good to meet you too. All the best. Our thanks to Chloe Valdery. So much appreciate her coming on. Later this week, stay tuned because we're going to have Piers Morgan. I have taken so much crap from my girlfriends for saying that I want to be just like Piers Morgan when I grow up. It's not because I agree with all of his opinions. It's because he says whatever the hell he pleases. He says whatever he wants to say, and he is unapologetic for it. And I love just his freedom. Like he doesn't, he has zero need to be liked which explains his approval ratings. No, I definitely kidding. I love the guy. I just think he's really brave. And I'm not the biggest fan of Meghan and Harry. And I I will not miss one of his columns on them. I mean, they're like stinking holier than thou attitude. They're going to lecture everybody on their privilege while they're sitting in their $20 million mansion in California. All right, I digress. We're going to get into all of it with Piers uh, when he joins me later this week. But first, today's episode was brought to you in part by ScoreMaster. See how many points ScoreMaster can add to your credit score. Visit scoremaster.com slash MK now. It really is a service that can essentially pay for itself. All right, we'll see you later this week. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megan Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.